Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. This week, it's time for our best of 2019. Some say it's France, 50 years behind. There's a sense this was never France to begin with. You go inside, you find the most fascinating urbanism that you can ever imagine. We're not mincing words about the emergency that we're facing with climate change. Join us as we go through some of the highlights of the year that was on The Urbanist. We talk climate change with Los Angeles Chief Sustainability Officer, explore the city of Cayenne, meet Alfredo Brillenburg and hear his vision for new radical urbanism, walk through what makes a good citizen and much, much more. That's all coming up right here over the next 30 minutes on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. Stay tuned. Well, how about we start this tour of the best of the urbanist in 2019 in the city of Cayenne, or Guillaume, as the French call it. This is a place that provides a window into France of the past and where Latin America and Europe meet by the Atlantic. It's a city with a unique cultural mix, and earlier in the year, our correspondent, Lucinda Elliott, went to Cayenne and sent us this report. You're one of us, the tanned immigration officer says, beckoning me over as he spots the Burgundy passport. I'd been standing in the wrong foreign nationals queue, when I should, he explains, be in the local European line. Like Dordogne or Paris, French Guyana is a department of France. Today, it's as much a part of the European Union as Hamburg or Verona. EU visitors pass through freely on arrival with just an ID card to find their mobile phones automatically picking up signal from a French provider. Euros are exchanged to settle the taxi ride from the airport on the outskirts of the capital Cayenne, and on the way, Carrefour supermarkets and road signs with the name striked out in red to signal the end of one town and the start of another are all familiar landmarks. But Guyane, as the French call it, bar the name and imports, is about as far removed from Europe as the 7,000-kilometre stretch of ocean that separates it from Paris. There are no Uber drivers or a Starbucks cafe for a start. Arriving at Cayenne's international airport, the customs inspector sits behind an antique wooden desk. Excited children are running to and from the arrivals lounge back through the doors to the baggage claim area to greet recently arrived family members disembarking the Air France flight. Then driving into Cayenne, tall, sloping palms and banana plants border the tarmac roads that, when on Google Maps, are concentrated on the coast. The rest of the country, about the size of Portugal, is largely impassable Amazon forest, outside GPS territory, with a few communities accessed exclusively by river. Cayenne, where the majority of the 300,000 or so residents of French Guyana live, at a glance is a city in a dilapidated state. Some say it's France, 50 years behind. There's a sense this was never France to begin with. Traditional Creole cottages, like those found in the French Quarter in New Orleans, dominate the downtown area, that's separated by a series of dirty canals. Their protected status prevents them from being pulled down, even though most houses are in an advanced stage of decomposition. More tropical rain can fall here in a single month than in an entire year on average in northern France. There's also a huge litter issue. Piles of the stuff outside Chinese-run supermarkets, selling all the usual plastic goods, feather dusters, mixed in with a divine box of sable butter biscuits from Brittany. Culturally, Cayenne is an incomprehensible melting pot. There's a large Asian community, 
some originally from Vietnam, that was also a former French colony, and others from Laos and mainland China that settled in neighbouring Suriname, the former Dutch colony to the west. Caribbean islanders from the nearby French overseas territories of Martinique and Guadeloupe, Amerindian and African descendants of slaves, plus Europeans, Brazilians and more recently Haitians and Dominicans. In fact, 35% of the population are foreign nationals, compared with only around 6% on average in mainland France. Cayenne Central Market, open three days a week, is a case in point. Everyone bartering Creole, or heavily accented French. One reason, of course, is because it's France in Latin America, with all the benefits of better healthcare, security and education that's long appealed to poorer migrants from South American nations. But Cayenne, and French Guyana where it sits, is the poorest apartment in France by a long way, with an average annual income of €15,000. And with every new arrival, there's less money to go around from an already tight welfare budget. At the mayor's office, a stone's throw away from the market, inside a fading pale yellow town hall, almost like a chateau, two-terms mayor Marie Horth explains how immigration is becoming more of an issue. It's a big problem for me. Pour toutes les communes, pour yeah. toutes les communes. Massive, massive. Voilà, il faut lui expliquer que tous les squats euh, sont occupés par les populations haïtiennes, brésiliennes, surtout. Bah, haïtiennes et brésiliennes. Haïtiennes, ok. Mm. Et le, mm. ouais, le, le, squat, le problème du squat, c'est ça. C'est l'immigration. C'est l'immigration. Okay. She wants to redo the Creole houses, rebuild the canals, create a promenade and give the place a good spruce up. The rubbish collection, she explains, is simply an administrative issue. Eh ben, une ville plus propre. Bon, c'est vrai qu'en ce moment, elle est sale. C'est simplement pour un problème de marché. Mais c'est à cause de l'administration qui n'avait pas mis d'alerte. Donc, la remise des offres a été faite hier. Donc, ce sont les agents de la ville, en fait, qui doivent la mise. C'est pour ça qu'elle est sale. Hein. Ah, d'accord. Non, non, c'est récent. C'est temporaire. C'est temporaire. Part of the issues like high youth unemployment and crime come from the fact there's little industry to speak of. And the only well-paid jobs here in Cayenne are civil servant positions, or at the European Space Centre that launches satellite almost monthly in the port town of Carew. One local looking to change that is Jean-Hubert Francois. He runs a farm 40 minutes out of town and is one of the first to export produce to France, mainly tonnes of sweet potatoes. Many don't export because it's not worth it if they don't ship produce in large quantities. Local production has never been encouraged by mainland France. You can make fruits and eggs and everything you want, and just say we don't leave fish just for French Guyana. It's not possible. Because if we do it like this, when it will pass 10 or 20 years, we have too much product for the country. I want today, we skip with uh, tradition, but grow, I grow. Go to the professional agriculture. For me, I'll tell when a young person talk to me and then he, Oh, you think, you think, uh, I could do this thing, this thing? Yeah. I say, yes, do it, do it, do it, do it. And when I come here, they tell me, oh, I see that a lot of tea, a lot of things, I want to do the same. I say, no, don't do the same like me, you have to do more. More, more than me. And because for me, I start to work. I started, then I continue yeah. for the more than the children. When I see them, they will say, ah, okay, then do it, I want to do more. Is this will make the country grow up. For me, agriculture is a work we could put to make enough young person have a work. There's a sense of optimism from Jean and the next generation in Cayenne, with an ambition to create something that is truly theirs, not from the metropole.
For Monocle in Cayenne, I'm Lucinda Elliott. A report there by Monocle's Lucinda Elliott in Cayenne. This year was marked by the devastating fire that ravaged the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. The dramatic footage of the spire collapsing into the building's structure made headlines around the world and is sure to make many end-of-year lists for photographs that defined the year. As people watched the live coverage with incredulity, there was the lingering fear that Notre Dame could be lost forever, engulfed by flames before our own eyes. I was joined by the historian Christopher Lee and he described what it was like to be in front of the cathedral on that day. I stood in front of it as it burned and I found myself actually, and I've got no connection with, with France. And I stood there and I thought, this is awful. And I'm not quite sure what I thought now is awful about it. It was a phenomenon. And it might have been a mistake or whatever, but I immediately thought in modern times, it was who done this? And I immediately thought of terrorism, thought of all the modern things. And then when you come to rebuild, you rebuild or reshape. You reshape in the society in which you live. And if you stand with tears in your eyes thinking it might have been terrorists, then you're living in a different society in which the original carvers and architects lived to build that. I don't know, it's not a question of weeping with France. If you burn something as magnificent as that, I remember during the Balkans War, the huge concern that the library had been destroyed. And it got more coverage in some ways. I remember John Simpson, who was reporting them for the BBC. He came on at nine o'clock at night on the major news story and said, how many 50,000 books, and therefore the heritage of a country, had been destroyed. The historian Christopher Lee there, and this is The Urbanist. Cemetery plots within city boundaries are hot property, no matter where in the world they are. Couple that with a surrounding housing shortage and a protected ecological landscape, and the fight for space only magnifies. Such is the case for New Zealand's biggest and arguably most storied burial site, Waikumeti Cemetery in Auckland. And a couple of months ago, we enlisted the help of our resident Kiwi, David Stevens, to tell us more. Waikumeti Cemetery is New Zealand's largest, occupying 108 hectares in the middle of the suburb of Glen Eden in Auckland. It's the final resting place for over 70,000 people, each with their own unique experience of the land they chose to return to. It's also home to New Zealand's largest war grave, as well as an urupa for Māori burials and memorials to tragedies that struck the country, such as the Erebus plane crash and the 1918 influenza epidemic. It even has a subdivision dubbed Dali Alley, housing mausoleums for some of the region's most prolific winemaking families. The site's stories could go on forever, but recent estimates have found that its service as a cemetery perhaps may not. Plots are on course to fill up in the next three to four years, and with that, the history of the city and its people is also set to stall. So why not expand? Well, despite the fact that Waikumete exists in a relatively dense area of the city, its efforts to grow are hampered on two main fronts. Firstly, Auckland is suffering a well-documented housing shortage, and more space for the dead would mean less space for the living. Cemeteries also require flat land with good links to public transport, 
exactly the things vital to housing development. But perhaps the bigger issue here is the ecological one. Waikamiti is as much a public green space as it is a place for those who have passed. And among that green space exists vast areas of gum trees. These areas were declared protected under the Auckland Unitary Plan in 2015. Experts argued that the areas were important for supporting indigenous vegetation and signed off on widening the areas of protection, which overlapped the very sites by which the cemetery had hoped to grow. This year, an Environment Committee meeting identified two new zones that were approved for consultation on potential development. But action is needed fast. The city's other two major cemeteries are due to be full up by 2050 at the latest. Burial traditions haven't helped ease the demand either. Auckland's population diversity is only growing, and that growth has welcomed more cultures who prefer burials over cremation. But rituals will have to change as populations continue to rise. Efforts like eco-burials, where family members are given GPS coordinates for the unmarked space where their loved one's biodegradable casket was lowered, are starting to pick up, and the use of public mausoleums or smaller plots for ash scattering are other ways these cemeteries can maximise on space. Whatever happens, this piece of land will forever tell the stories of the people laid to rest here. It just may be that this story in particular is nearing its conclusion. That was Monocle's very own David Stevens. During the summer, we asked you one simple question. Do you think you know how to be a good citizen? But we wouldn't leave you empty-handed. Don't worry, here's our own small rulebook on how to live in harmony with your city. What does your city owe you? We talk about the importance of good governance when it comes to tip-top infrastructure, well-maintained parks and public spaces. High-quality services too, such as good schools and efficient police forces. All of them are important. But cities are made up of people, not bureaucrats. Just as we reflect on the concept of civic responsibility when it comes to citizens of a nation, we should also be aware of what it means to be a good city resident. We know what you're thinking. Isn't it obvious? Don't I already know how to be a good Berliner or an exemplary Vancouverite? Be tolerant, be a good neighbour and vote in local elections. Easy. But not everyone practices what they preach. Local elections, for example, have notoriously low turnouts. In the US, a dismal 27% of eligible voters actually cast ballots in municipal elections. In the UK, the highest voter turnout in local elections was just 51.4%, and that was in 2018. There also seems to be some confusion over what exactly constitutes being a good neighbour. Cities have evolved in the 21st century, and so have manners and modes of conduct. So we've come up with a handy rundown of the ways in which you can be a good, engaged urbanite and also help to create a better, friendlier, more livable city in the process. Let's recap some of the rules. Look out for others. Pay attention. It should go without saying that you shouldn't use your phone to play music or watch TV on public transport without headphones. But how about taking a break from using your phone at all? Too often, trains and trams are packed with people sitting lost in their own little world, while the elderly gent in the corner or the woman weighed down with the shopping bags is forced to stand. Keep an eye on what's going on around you. Keep up to date. 
read your local paper. Better yet, subscribe. It's far more likely than the big nationals to be covering city issues that directly affect you. And it'll be better equipped to do so with financial support. And once you've finished reading, why not leave it neatly folded on the train for someone else to peruse? Take action. Wish your building had a rooftop garden? Create one. Gather support, petition the landlord, and pull resources to build a shared space, whether it be for barbecues, garden parties, or open-air film screenings. Be engaged. Show up. Whether it's running for city council or just making an appearance at meetings, getting involved and keeping informed about what's going on in your neighbourhood is the first step in shaping your city. Chill out. Watch out. It's great to get the heart pumping with a bracing run, less so to be bundled over by a sweaty jogger who's forgotten that someone else might need the pavement. Be patient with children or the elderly crossing the road or walking along a little slowly. You're not in that much of a rush. Likewise for speeding on quiet residential roads, plus cycling or scooting on the pavement. Keep it clean. Go beyond not littering. Invest in a few bins if your neighbourhood is lacking. And if you spot a plastic bag or a discarded piece of cardboard on the ground, shaking your head and tutting won't do much to solve the problem. So lead by example. Pick it up and throw it away. Put it away. An increasing number of cities have bike share and scooter share programs, and many of them also have problems with piles of bikes or scooters dumped haphazardly around town. By all means, borrow a ride, but leave the scooter standing upright in a sensible place when you're done. Be tolerant. Let the little things go. If your neighbour's one party a year runs a bit late, skip the snide remarks in favour of a friendly wave the next time you see them. Chances are you're not the perfect neighbour either. Embrace change. Not everyone can afford a Georgian pile. Don't be the bully to block a housing development if it has a chance to sustain the area and bring in new residents. City life is all about change and chance encounters. Don't be a bore. Stay close. Frequent the shops in your neighbourhood. Lots of people bemoan the fate of retail, no matter where in the world they live. And many column inches have been devoted to the fact that high streets are changing for the worse. But independent shops and small businesses aren't being forced to close by some unstoppable force. They need your support. Skip Amazon and take a stroll. Be positive. Be a cheerleader for where you live. Have you ever ventured to a great new city only to notice that all the locals seem to do is put it down? There's something to be said about the infectious nature of civic pride, so boast about your city's good points at home and away. Be prepared. It's not pleasant to contemplate, but you should have an idea about what to do in the event of a terrorist incident. From keeping an eye out to knowing the numbers to call and places to go, being reasonably prepared is a realistic rule for city living in 2019. And the final rule? Well, break the rules. It might seem counterintuitive to include this in a residence rule book, but don't forget to break the rules once in a while. Do insane city regulations prevent you from planting flowers on your street corner? Go on, try it anyway. Not supposed to drink in public? Sneak a bottle of wine into the park to enjoy it with your picnic or just throw a block party. One US city that's certainly been at the heart of the climate emergency debate is Los Angeles. 
Mayor Eric Garcetti created a climate emergency mobilisation department and the first climate emergency commission in the world. Back in April, he announced his Green New Deal for the city, setting Los Angeles on course to be carbon neutral by 2050. Driving the implementation of this plan is the city's chief sustainability officer, Lauren Faber O'Connor. Monocle's acting bureau chief in Los Angeles, Carlotta Rabello, caught up with Lauren to understand how the city got to this point and also what lies ahead. We, and the mayor certainly is himself, he's real with people. And we're not mincing words about the emergency that we're facing with climate change and the changes that we need to see that when we do make them, our lives are better. But they are different, right? When we have high school kids at the steps of City Hall every Friday protesting because they're genuinely afraid for what their lives are going to look like in their 40s and 50s and the 2030s and 40s. I mean, that's just in the prime of their life. And science is telling us that, you know, if we don't do something now, that it could be the end of the world by then. And so there's real anxiety on all sides that we have to be very honest with our populations about and make our solutions as accessible and high quality as possible because these changes are coming to Los Angeles, but we know that they're coming to the betterment of people's lives. Are we going to have every single person when they are done with their food be putting all their trash in the right bins? Maybe not every single person. We might not be able to get to 100%. But if we have the infrastructure and the services available, we'll be able to get to the vast majority of people who ultimately do want to do right by their families, by their children, the quality of their own lives. It's interesting you mentioned school children protesting in front of City Hall, this whole movement that has really taken over the world. Just in London a couple of months ago, you know, they were camped out outside, closing even some of the bridges and main squares because it is that idea that adults are letting us down in a way. Our world won't exist anymore when they grow up. And it has been quite inspiring to see that this movement is in a way being led by the younger generation. Do you find that that also helps with your message and what you're trying to achieve to be like, look at them. They are fighting the battles that we should be, but they're doing it for us. Yeah, I mean, you know, for your international audience here in particular, the mobilization of young people across Europe and beyond that is coming and influencing the United States, which interestingly, you know, we've heard that that mobilization itself, that climate mobilization was influenced and inspired by Parkland students in the U.S. So it's really incredible how social media and a more engagement by young people are you have people across the country and the world that are communicating and learning lessons from each other. And so I look at these students and I see these students and what they're doing and my heart aches. My heart aches that we have young people that are so concerned and nervous about their future and I'm so inspired. I'm so inspired because they are looking at the world in a completely different way than their predecessors have been willing to do. And that is going to open up so many possibilities, teaching their parents, their older generations that love them so much, and enabling an entire new way of living our lives that is more sustainable, communal, and thinking about other people. It's just extremely inspiring. That was Los Angeles' Chief Sustainability Officer, Lauren Faber O'Connor, speaking to our Acting Bureau Chief in Los Angeles, Colotta Rabella.
Finally, how do you make better homes in South Africa's vast informal settlement of Kaya home to hundreds of thousands of people all looking for a better life? Should Caracas embrace the skills and ingenuity of squatter communities? And how do you build a sports centre on a mountain covered in shacks? And what happens if you don't do any of the above? We brought you a special episode this year with just one interview. I attended Utopian Hours, a festival of urbanism run by Torino Stratosferica, which had a great lineup of speakers. One of them was Alfredo Brillenburg, who runs the urban think tank with Hubert Klumpner. He gave a speech which said, in short, get involved or face a revolution. So when we heard he was coming to London, we asked him to join me in the studio so you could also hear about his work, his fears and his big vision for a new radical urbanism. Here's a highlight from our conversation. When you stand in front of a favela or a, a mountain of houses, of shacks, whether it be in Cape Town or whether it be in Brazil or whether it be in Caracas, you are standing in front of what some people have called the slum. But if you reverse that and you go into the barrios, as we call them in Venezuela, which is neighborhood, not a pejorative term, but actually it's a neighborhood, and you go inside, you find the most fascinating urbanism that you can ever imagine, little streets and connections and houses built over houses, tunnels, things, bridges, and it's quite fascinating. It's all done with the local material, with the cheapest available building material. And at the same time, it has a modularity because it's got a tectonic, because there's a logic about the construction, the modularity of it. What Kenneth Frampton likes to say is it an Italian hill town in quotation marks, which is very funny. But he's not totally wrong. It's got problems. It's got sewage problems. It's got water problems. It's got violence. And it's missing a lot of services. So when we realized that Caracas was 60% informal, and built by the barrio dwellers themselves, we said, well, that's an amazing thing, and maybe that should be the object of our research and work, how to bring in public space, how to bring in the missing services like sports courts, hospitals, transportation, music schools, all the things that the rest of the city had, but 60% of the population in the city didn't have. This is what happens to aid destined for Venezuela. Casualties and panic. A convoy of vital supplies set on fire. Opposition forces battling all day. Gunfire, tear gas and firebombs exploding in the heart of Venezuela. It's one of Venezuela's biggest mass protests. Opponents of President Nicolas Maduro chant, this government will fall. Now, we all know from watching the news that it's a tough time in Venezuela and that money is short and politics is complicated. How do you even begin to go about making a contract with the people in the barrios, with people in civic government who still have the time and the effort and the money to help you? How do you get projects off the ground in somewhere that tough? Very important because it doesn't work like a top-down solution. Arctic doesn't just come in and find the financing and just impose because if the people in the neighborhoods don't want it and they won't care for it, it won't be sustainable and it will be unused 
later in life. And so in this case of the soccer pitch turned into 4,000 square meters of sports courts on four floors, it was really a bottom-up top-down mix where the architect is right in the middle. The architect is the moderator of the process or let's say the glue between the, let's say, the mayor's initiative and his finding and sourcing the money and the bottom-up initiative of running it and creating it. So as we were playing soccer, it rained six months out of the year in Caracas, and those sports courts are unusable during a real torrential rain. So they initially only wanted a roof. But we said, if we build your roof, why don't we add some more program in? And we worked out very carefully what that could be. And today, from a little sports court where only six-on-six six play in the Barrio in Chacao was measured recently in post-occupancy, we have 15,000 repeated users a month. So initially, we don't need McKinsey to tell us that that sports court, it will be the right thing to do. You just have to look around and you see 70,000 people on a hill and with only one little basketball court, and you know it's going to work. Alfredo Brillenburg there. Well, that's all we have for our stories. A short word from me, David and Colotta, who put The Urbanist together every week. It's been amazing to have the response of listeners supporting us, sending us ideas across the year. This show is dependent on you and the people we meet to make it a success. So thank you and happy Christmas, happy holidays, happy new year and whatever else you're up to. Thank you. That's all for this edition, though, of The Urbanist. Today's show was produced by, oh yes, Carlotta Ribello, and it was edited by, of course, David Stevens. To play you out of this week's episode, here's Curtis Harding with Next Time. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. Mm-hmm.